Well, as you saw this morning, we're going to be in two passages. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 6 and Luke chapter 11. We've been walking through prayer. And what does the Bible teach about prayer? We can continue that series today. And today we're going to talk about discipling prayer, a prayer that disciples others and disciples ourselves. And the reality is, right, when we talk about prayer, prayer often is something we think of as individualistic, as something that's between us and God, something that's individual, that, that's private in some way. But what's interesting about how Jesus taught about prayer is there was a communal and discipling element to prayer. And so we're going to walk through that this morning. But before we begin, there's a question I want to ask you. I want you to honestly think about this question. Are your prayers selfish? Are your prayers selfish? Are they self-centered? What do you think of when I ask that question? I think if you're like me, the natural place I went to when asked that question is the content of my prayer, right? Is my prayer, the content I pray about, is about myself. But what about the context of your prayers? What about the circumstances in which your prayers happen? Do you pray that when you pray, is it about yourself? Obviously, the content of our prayers matter, and Jonathan's talked a lot about that. We're going to look at some of that today. But what about the context of our prayers? Are there times in which we should be praying, places in which we should be praying, that are other-focused? Because I think the reality is what we see Jesus teach is that prayer is an important part of making disciples. Because disciples of Christ pray. Before Jesus ascends into heaven, he, he gathers his disciples together and he tells them, he, he commands them, teach the disciples to obey all that I have commanded. And Jesus taught about prayer. And so to be a disciple of Christ means you pray the way that Jesus taught you to pray. And so our first point this morning is that we are taught to pray. We are taught to pray. You see, the reality is Jesus taught about prayer both publicly and privately. The two passages we had this morning, right, one from the Sermon on the Mount in, in Matthew chapter 6, and the other from a private teaching between Jesus and his disciples. And what's amazing is that effectively the teaching does not differ at all, right? Whether he's talking to the large group, right, the gathered crowds, or he's talking to his disciples, Jesus taught the same thing about prayer. In fact, we know from, Matthew, from the Luke chapter 11, the disciples expected Jesus to teach them about prayer. In fact, we get a clue that all disciples in that time thought their master would teach them about prayer because that seems to be what John did, right? In the Luke chapter 11 passage, right, the disciples come to Jesus and say, John taught his disciples how to pray. Will you teach us how to pray? They believed that prayer was something that was taught. And in fact, we cannot assume that we know how to pray. Those of you that have kids will understand this very clearly, because nothing is more funny than watching a two-year-old try to pray and figuring out the things that they will pray for. Every night when we put McKinley to bed, we, we pray with her, and it's amazing how often the number one thing is the dog on her prayer list. We have a great dog, but McKinley thinks that dog needs a lot of prayer. Right? It's amazing the things children will pray for, and over time we teach them how to pray. 
right? If you ever, even an adult believer, right, somebody that comes to faith as an adult that maybe didn't grow up praying, right, listening to them pray is often a different experience than hearing a mature believer that's been in church for a long time pray. Why? Because we've taught people how to pray. In fact, Jesus assumes in the Sermon on the Mount that the people he's talking to have assumptions about how to pray. The reason I know that is because in verse 5, all the way up through verse 8, he talks about two different ways they've seen prayer. One is the way the Pharisees prayed, right? These public prayers. And the other was the way the Gentiles prayed. And he assumed that the people he was talking to thought prayer had to look like one of those two ways. Their culture had taught them how to pray. And so when Jesus was going to teach them about how to pray, he had to, he had to break down the walls in which their culture had taught them how to pray. A great example of this, a, a silly way, but I think it's, it's helpful to understand, um, I've done some mission trips over in England. If you ever go to places that are not Christian, where the the majority of the culture is not Christian, one of the first things a missionary is going to teach you is when you sit down for a meal, if you don't want to look like a complete weirdo, don't bow your head and close your eyes before you pray at the meal. Because nobody else in that restaurant has ever done that in their life. And so they're going to be like, what are these strangers with their heads closed whispering to themselves at that table? And the reality is, because in their culture, that's not something they've ever seen. We take it for granted, right? If we, went to, if we go to lunch today, and we see somebody at a different table with their head closed, and their, their, their head bowed, and their eyes closed praying, we just understand what they're doing. Because contextually, our culture has taught us what that means. We are all taught how to pray. We are either let our culture teach us, or we let Scripture teach us how to pray. Prayer is, by definition, something that is discipled into us. And so we cannot be neutral about it. Here's why. It's not just that we're taught to pray. It's because by necessity, prayer teaches our hearts. Prayer is a discipling act in that it makes us either more or less like Christ. Prayer is not neutral in the walk of a disciple. In fact, I think this is the heart of what Jesus is teaching when he talks about pray like this. You see, what we believe will be expressed in our prayers— And what we pray will eventually become what we believe. It's a cycle. So the more we pray like Christ intended us to pray, the more we become like Christ. And the more we pray in a way that is unbiblical, the more we will believe unbiblical things. Or put it a different way, there's a direct connection between our hearts and what we say. Jesus himself teaches us in Matthew 15. And so when Jesus says, pray like this, what does he mean? Have you ever thought about that? Often, I'm sure many of us, especially when we've grown up in church, have heard the Lord's Prayer a lot. Some of us may even say it regularly. But Jesus starts, especially on the Sermon on the Mount, he starts the Lord's Prayer with pray like this. Well, what's the this, right? What does it mean to pray like this? How do we know if something's in line with the Lord's Prayer? Well, some of the things we see in the Lord's Prayer. First, we see the reality of God. Jesus starts his prayer with our Father in heaven, the reality of God. And then he moves from the reality of God to the reality of God's nature. Our prayers should not just reflect that God is true, but should reflect who he is as true. And so Christ emphasizes that with his prayer, the reality not just of God, but of his nature. But he moves on from there, not just to focus on the reality of God and his nature, but the reality of us and our nature, right? That we are dependent upon God. Give us our daily bread. 
that we sin are, are sinned against by others, right? Help us to forgive others as we have been forgiven, right? He reflects the reality of our own sinfulness and our own rebellion and our need for God. And then ultimately he weaves those together to show how those two truths combine in the life of the believer, And so to pray like this, to pray like we see in the Lord's Prayer, means that we reflect the truth of Scripture. We reflect that we are sinners. That God, as the Creator, created every human being. And He demands things of us. And we, in our own sin and rebellion, have rejected God. And we have chosen to go our own way. And we, because of that, face damnation. We face the wrath of God for all eternity. But Christ, being fully God and fully man, was born of the Virgin Mary. He lived a perfect, holy, sinless life, and he died on the cross for our sins, was buried in a tomb, and rose again three days later. And because of that, we can be saved. And we can enter the throne room of God with our petitions and our pleas, and he hears us, not because of our own merit, but because of the merit of our Savior. Every prayer we pray, whether big or small, should reflect that reality. And if it does not, it is leading us farther away from Christ, not closer to him. And so our prayers matter because we will shape our heart by what we pray. And so we must examine when and how and what we pray. In reality, this is really what Jonathan's been teaching us about through this series on prayer, right? Is to take the time to really examine our hearts and and say, what are we praying how are we praying? What is, the, what is the spirit in which we come to prayer with? And so I have some questions for you to think about to ask yourself, what am I teaching my heart through my prayers? The first question, I think this is really important, is, is your prayer guided by Scripture? Is your prayer guided by Scripture? We sang just a second ago, right, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Apart from Scripture, we all know how deceitful and wicked our hearts are. And so our prayers need to be constantly coming from and pointing back to Scripture because that is a guide that will not fail us. And so are your prayers guided by Scripture? What this may mean is are you taking the time to actually pray Scripture? Are you taking the time to open up the Word of God and just pray what you see written there? For some, if you've never done that before, it might be a little odd, it might be a little awkward at first, but I I think you'll find, especially as you pray through Psalms or other parts of Scripture, the richness of what God is teaching us in Scripture. But it may not even be specifically that. It just means that are you constantly reflecting back to, is what I'm praying true with what God has revealed? Second, what portion of your prayer focuses on you? What portion of your prayer focuses on God? And what portion of your prayer focuses on other people? This is a helpful way just to reflect on where is your heart at? What is consuming your thoughts? What drives you? It's not wrong to pray about yourself. It's not wrong to pray for yourself. In fact, in some ways, you should do that, right? But if the, if the, if the majority of your prayer is, is consumed by the wants and needs of your life, and it's very real reflection on who God is or who he's calling you to, the people around you, maybe there's a problem in your heart. And so take the time, reflect on what do you focus on in prayer. Here's an important one. Do you regularly confess and repent of sins in your prayer? 
right? In Jesus' sermon on the mountain, when he gives the Lord's prayer, right? He says, and forgive others, right? As you have forgiven us. It's a confession of, his, of the sin, right? Obviously, Christ is not sin, but it's a confession of our sins, right? You have forgiven us. We sinned. We needed forgiveness. Do your prayers have confession as an integral part of what they do? Because the reality is that is our nature. And so we're going to reflect the nature we have as humans. We need to be willing to confess our sins before our creator. Are your prayers concerned with the things that God is concerned about? Listen, there are a lot of things that can take our time and our attention and our energy. We get really busy. And we get really bogged down with things that are going on. And sometimes those things are good and sometimes those things are bad. But God is concerned about specific things. Especially for us and how we live. Are our prayers reflecting the truth about what God's concerned about? Or are we consumed with our concerns and our worries? Right? In Jesus' prayer, he recognizes that that we might have some concerns, right? Give us this day our daily bread, right? He's not saying it's wrong to be concerned that you have food on the table at the end of the day. But when it's put in the proper context of give me today what I need today. The concern is grounded upon the reality of God. Are your concerns God's concerns? And then from there, do they show a dependency on God? When you pray, is the reality that you are standing before the creator of the universe, not on your own merit, but on the merit of Christ. And the only reason you draw breath day after day, moment after moment, is not because you're all-powerful or all-knowing, Right? But because the all-powerful and all-knowing God sustains you, do your prayers show dependency upon God? The last one I have for you is probably a bunch of different questions you can think of to think through this. Are your prayers missional? Are your prayers missional? The reality is, right, our mission as Christians is to go and make disciples. That's what God is concerned about. God is concerned that we be obedient to him, and part of that means going and proclaiming. So in your prayer life, is there a regular pattern of praying that you would go and people would go to other people to proclaim the gospel? Are your prayers missional? Are you praying that disciples would be made through your life? Because the reality is, as a disciple of Christ, that's, that's a foundational to our identity and something that we take very important ultimately then, all prayer should orient us towards the throne of of God. It should point us back to the throne of God in such a way that we confess our sins and we repent, and then we're led in dependence on God out towards the nations. Right? So it orients us towards the throne. It points us towards the throne, right? And then in seeing who God is, we confess our sins and, and we repent, and then God takes that and he leads us back out to the people. In fact, is this not what happens to Isaiah when he appears before the throne of God? Right? The, the, the angel, the messenger brings him. He's brought before the throne of God. And in seeing God, right, he is made to confess his sins. And then God restores him, right, with the coal. And then after that, what is, God calls him not to stay there in the presence of God, but instead go proclaim the word of God to the people. It's a pattern for what prayer should do in our lives. Right? Prayer should cause us to take our eyes off the things in front of us and to focus our gaze upon the throne. 
It's why we see that the Bible tells us not to be anxious about anything, but in every situation, bring our prayers and petitions to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Why? Because when we pray, we don't focus on the problems in front of us. We focus on the God who can solve everything. And so prayer is going to disciple our hearts because it's going to reorient our focus. And so there's two kind of pitfalls I think we can fall into with this. There's two kind of guide rails I think that we need to put on this to make sure that we're praying in such a way that we disciple our own heart. The first is that we make our prayers overly formal. Or or formal may not be the best word, or overly detached. Here's what I mean by this. Formal prayers are great. They serve a purpose. But our prayers can become so formal, so detached, that they're not speaking truth into our hearts. And they're not reflecting what we're honestly going through. One of the things I think Jonathan's done a great job showing us is that true prayer is bringing our hearts before God and placing it there so he can examine it. And the reality is sometimes we can use formality in prayer to shield ourselves from being true before God. And so our prayer shouldn't become so formal, so stuffy, that there's no reality of what's happening. Now again, a word of caution, right? The truth for this and the truth for, for making sure that we're praying correctly is not our hearts, it's scripture, right? So just because our hearts maybe don't feel convicted doesn't necessarily mean that our prayers are wrong. But let's not become so stuffy and formal and detached in our prayers that we miss the reality of being true before the throne of God and letting him examine us. But the other guide rail is that we can become too informal with our prayers, We can become so informal that we miss the reality of what prayer is and who we are speaking to and what is his nature. It's the idea of reverence. There should be a a reverence when we pray because we are coming before the all-powerful, almighty creator of the universe. If you have some time, a good thing to study this week, is go look through all of Scripture. There's there's tons of places in Scripture when people come in contact with God. I mentioned one from Isaiah. You can think of Moses in the burning bush. You can think of Paul on the road to Damascus, right? You can think of John in his vision and revelation. There's many other examples. And stop and think about how the people that see God, how they react. To a T, almost every single one of them reacts with fear and trembling. They understand immediately whose presence they're in, and it scares them. Now, doesn't mean that we have to be fearful, shaking our boots every time we come before our Father, who, who's by the grace of Christ we can enter, but it means that we should come with a reverence for who we worship and who we're praying to. The fear of God is a healthy thing. And it should color and affect our prayers. And so let's make sure that when we pray, and we pray in a way that disciples our own hearts, that we do it in a way that is truthful, but is also reverent. And that's a hard line. And in reality, in some level, every single one of us is going to be a little bit different on where that is. For some of us, reverence might look a little different. For some of us, being overly formal might look a little bit different. But let's together pray in such a way that our own hearts are discipled to follow Christ more.
And so you see this pattern starting to develop, right? That we are taught how to pray. And that prayer disciples our own hearts. But then the pattern of Scripture is that discipleship never stops there. It's not just that we are taught, we live a specific way, but then always the pattern of discipleship biblically is once we are taught and we are living that way, we go out and we teach others. We must teach others to pray. If we truly believe that, that prayer is an integral part of discipleship, what it means to be disciples is that you pray specific ways and we have to be taught that, then we have a biblical responsibility to teach other people how to pray. Jesus taught other people how to pray. The disciples taught other people how to pray. The apostles taught other people how to pray. To be obedient to the command that all Christians are given to make disciples means that we have to teach other people how to pray. Now, some of this will be done passively. Just by being a faithful disciple, you will teach other people how to pray. But like all discipleship, it should also be actively done. So how are you actively teaching people to pray? In your home, fathers, how are you teaching your children to pray? Mothers, how are you teaching your children to pray? Husbands, how are you leading your wives to pray? Wives, what discipline of prayer are you showing your husbands? In your home, are you teaching others to pray as Scripture has commanded you and them to pray? If prayer is something that is taught, then teaching our children becomes of the utmost importance because if we don't teach them, the culture will teach them how to pray. And if you see how the culture prays, you understand that it's very far from the truth of how Scripture teaches us to pray. And so asking our kids what we've taught them and being open and honest is important to being true disciple-makers. But what about other believers? What are you teaching other believers about how to pray actively? If, an, if another believer, right, was going to look at your life and become a disciple based on you, what type of disciple would they be? And would prayer be a foundational component of their life? Biblical, strong prayer. Are you teaching others to believe, to pray, to live out what Christ has called them to do? Here's a one that's maybe specific to our culture. But do your prayers before mealtime teach other people to pray better? You know, we have a unique opportunity, especially with unbelievers in our culture, that it's not weird to pray before mealtime. That is a unique ability in our culture to make disciples, to teach. Do you take advantage of that? Are you actively teaching others? And then ultimately, in our church, how do we teach people how to pray? What is your Sunday school class teaching people about prayer? If you're like my Sunday school class, we take prayer requests every Sunday. And that's a great thing. I think it's something we're commanded to do biblically as we carry each other's burdens. But what are you consciously and unconsciously teaching your class through those prayer requests? Is every single prayer request focused on a health need? Is every single prayer request focused on something that's very immediate? How are you intentionally in your Sunday school classes discipling a robust prayer life? What about during our services? You know, one of the things that's probably really easy to miss, but, but Jonathan and I take time 
to think about what we pray each Sunday. And during our opening, during our offertory prayers, we're intentional about what we pray about. And we try to make sure that we're constantly and regularly confessing sins. That we're praying based on the circumstances we see around us. That we're praying for missions and opportunity. But what about us as a church? I encourage you, reflect on that this week. And we love insight on how we can pray better, how we can be deeper in prayer. But it's not something that's just done individually. It's something that we, as a body of believers, collectively do together. Do we as a church gather and pray in such a way that we make better prayers? Are the disciples we make as a church people who are deep and rich in prayer? And if not, how do we begin to do that? How are we faithful to Scripture in that regard? Now, I think with this, there's a word of caution I need to give, because it's a word of caution that Jesus gives. When we talk about discipling others and and living in such a way that people see us, they they are taught how to pray correctly. The word of caution is, do not become a Pharisee. You see, it's easy to become a Pharisee when you start doing this, right? The Pharisees, right, went out on the street corner, and they prayed, right, their prayers, or they went out in the temple, and they prayed them in public, and and it'd be really easy to say, well, they're just showing other people how to pray, and Jesus makes it clear that's not their heart. They had received their reward, because the reason they were doing that is so not that other people would grow closer to God, but that other people would know how close to God they are. Let's not become Pharisees while we do this. The reality of all Christian discipleship is not that people would see us and think, that is an amazing person, look how close to God they are, but instead they would see us and they would say, what an amazing Savior they have. And that they would be challenged and equipped and encouraged to follow that Savior in a way that's above and beyond how we're following him. And so let our prayer lives demonstrate not our own worth, but let our prayer lives demonstrate our amazing Savior to the world around us. So here's my challenge for you. Who do you need to disciple in prayer? Jonathan's done a great job walking through prayer, and he's going he's to conclude the series next week. And I hope, like me, you've been encouraged, you've been challenged, you've been taught in prayer. But the reality of the Christian life is that if we keep that to ourselves, we are failing something that's intrinsic to being a disciple of Christ. And so who do you need to tomorrow, or this afternoon, or this week, go to and say, let me show you how to pray? Or maybe, maybe, who do you need to be like a disciple and go to and show, teach me how to pray? As the worship team comes forward and we enter a time of invitation, there's something important that needs to be said. Prayer is foundational to the Christian life, but prayer, as the Bible lays out, can only happen for the Christian. Here's why. Your sin matters. Your sin has consequences. Your sin separates you from God and separates you from enjoying the goodness of God. And so because of your sin, you are kept out of good relation with God. But Jesus Christ, being perfect, died on the cross for your sins. 
And scripture tells us he has become a great mediator. He has become the person that stands in the gap and restores our relationship with God the Father. And so because of what he's done, we can enter into the throne room of God and we can bring our petitions and requests to the all-powerful, almighty creator of the universe who can do all and has done all. And so if you're here today and you're not a Christian, you can experience everything we talked about today by turning from your sins and trusting in Christ. And you can be restored to that relationship and you can have the direct connection to the all-powerful creator. And you can pray in such a way that there's richness and depth and you are transformed into the image of Christ. But if you're not in Christ, there is no connection for you. So I challenge you and I plead with you, turn today and trust in Christ. Let us stand and sing together. I'll be down here in the front if you'd like to talk. Together.